Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to The Life of a Song, the monthly music podcast from the FT, in which we explore the biography of a different song, its origins and cover versions, and how it's evolved over time. This week, in a special festive episode, we shall be discussing the vexing question of the Christmas song. What makes a good Christmas song? How many bells are too many bells? Children's choirs, yes or no? We shall be exploring these important issues by looking at an elite selection of Christmas songs. I'm Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, the FT's pop critic, and I'm joined by David Cheel, who edits the Life of the Song series. Hello, David. Hello, Ludo. And I'm also joined by Helen Brown, who writes about pop for the FT and other publications that we need not discuss on this occasion. <laughs> Hi, Ludo. Right, the first song that we're going to look at is a particularly old song. It is The Holly and the Ivy. Helen, there we have Christmas at its most traditional. Tell us something about the holly and the ivy. Well, this is a song that has its roots in the pagan tradition. So back before we had our Christmas trees bringing a splash of green to Christmas, the holly and the ivy would have been the plants that would have brightened the woodlands. They would have been brought inside homes and churches at Christmas. The pagan symbolism, historically, the holly was a kind of male fertility symbol. Um, You could also use it inside your house to protect against lightning, apparently. And the ivy winding its way rather weakly around these things was meant to represent femininity. So in the older versions of the song, the lyrics went, the holly and his merry men they dance and they sing ivy and her maidens they weep and they ring but the lyrics were all cleaned up and christianized by cecil sharp in the victorian period and that's the version that we have today now i would imagine a pagan christmas as being really quite a merry affair you know tons <laughs> of, of booze and yeah. a lot of wassailing probably not a lot of clothes <laughs> around the roaring fire that sort of thing this song however strikes me as being particularly vanilla very sort of uh, high sung you know all of these fluting tones david what's this clean version of the holly and the ivy i think it's partly because the sort of christian elements have been grafted onto it i imagine yes. that, that, that back in the day it was probably a, a sort of slightly more lusty robust kind of song i think it's partly in the way we're used to hearing it delivered 
I think essentially it is a folk tune. If you sing it as a folk tune, then it, it changes its character. Yeah, I mean, we just heard that very sort of pure choral version, but you can, you know, that's got a beat. And yeah. the version we saw was sung by the um, choir of the King's College, Cambridge, and so we heard a very churchified version yeah. of what mm, once yeah. might have been a rather bawdier affair, I suppose. I guess um, so. And how important would you say it was, Helen, Christianity as an ingredient of the, of the Christmas song? Well, I mean, it depends how Christian you want to make your Christmas, doesn't it? And I think people have different approach. So it depends, you know, what you want to put onto your Christmas. You know, I think the air is something spiritual. It's nice. It's good to be reminded occasionally that essentially it's a Christian festival, yeah. I, I... Which leads us to the next song mm. on our list, which is, well, one could almost call it a prog rock diatribe against the commercialisation of Christmas. <laughs> yes. And it's your choice. It's your choice, yeah. David. It's Greg Lake's I Believe in Father Christmas, released in I introduced that as being prog rock, a bit unfair really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well it has um, deeply proggy sort of origins. It's Greg Lake who, along with the lyricist Pete Sinfield, they were together in um, King Crimson, probably the proggiest of all prog rock <laughs> bands. At the time, Greg Lake was in Emerson, Lake and Palmer and each member of the band was tasked with coming up with a song, so he had this tune floating around. Sinfield came up with these rather bleak lyrics about sort of the disillusionment of Christmas, so Greg Lake set them to the music and also inserted this little bit of Prokofiev, the incidental music from a Russian film called Lieutenant Kijay. But it's curious because you, you'll often hear this song sort of coming out over... PA systems in shops at Christmas and it's it's not anti-Christmas but it's about disillusionment as much as anything. It seems to me um, Helen, this song with its sort of creed de coeur against the loss of innocence belongs very much to 1975, the end of the Vietnam War, the hippie era well and truly over, punk rock about to crush the prog rockers like Lake. Yeah but it's looking to a future isn't it, it's like I wish you a hopeful Christmas at the end so it does, mm. it does turn itself around it, it's facing Christmas as an adult so it's like okay, some of this magic wasn't real, you know, some lies have been told, We're going to try and move on and be it ends up as a, i think a positive humanist anthem do you think david that realism we want realism in our christmas songs we want something which is going to be more sort of down to earth something which is going to bring us down with a bit of a jolt i may be going a little bit off topic here but i've just written about silent night in the ft in this slot there was another version which which is not of silent night it's basically saying it's the song is called it was not a silent night there was blood on the ground and, and painting a very different picture of the nativity to me that's a, a more sort of bracing and realistic picture of the nativity scene it does seem to be that some of our best loved christmas songs fairy tale of new york for instance carry with them <laughs> which is of course a very romantic song but have a yeah. great deal of grit don't they Helen? Mm. there's actually we don't want to have everything wrapped up in bows well sophian stevens who i think we're going to talk about later he talks about christmas as being the time of sort of bipolar emotion so i think everything is just intensified so the anger the hope the the fantasy the reality all of these things seem feel more extreme now let's go to the opposite a song which embraces the commercial possibilities of Christmas in all its gaudy manifestations. This is Frosty the Snowman from Phil Spector's Christmas album A Christmas Gift for You, released in 1963.
Now here we hear the Ronettes singing that version of the song. Yeah. It was uh, released at the time when Phil Spector's fame was at its greatest, his sort of sway. He'd、mm. had a run of hits with his girl groups and his patented wall of sound style of production. This album, I think, one could say, is probably the classic, is it not, David? Yeah, yeah Christmas. Th- yes, Phil Spector has become part of Christmas now, isn't he? Helen, here we hear Bell's Glore on this. I、yeah. mean, he didn't hold back. I did mean,、he? it's glitter on tinsels, on、yes. baubles, <laughs> on yes, candles, on on spice. You know, and it's also it's honing in on that. I think that girl group era of high drama, that sort of leader of the pack car crash. Because Frosty the Snowman, I mean, he doesn't melt like the guy in the snowman. He gets hit by a car, I think. Perhaps that happens in California. Tra- I think in California the, that must be、yeah. the risk. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. the traffic、snowman. cop says stop, he keeps going. So you know, there's this kind of weird dramatic tension. <laughs> Now, obviously, Spectre's personal life was extremely troubled, and her, he's currently、um, in prison for、mm. having killed a woman. I mean, an awful tale. And the conditions in which this album was recorded turn out. To have been really quite difficult. For instance,、uh, the singer with the crystals, Lala Brooks, recalls working from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. and likened it to a form of child abuse. So, is it possible to listen to this album knowing that its creator turned out to be such a wicked man, and that the conditions in which it was made were so awful for those involved, or could be? That's a, a, a huge question, isn't it? I mean, there are all kinds of artists who who are really unpleasant and often brutal people, but their work is is brilliant. So. I think in Spectre's case, I think you can dissociate the song from、yeah. the man.、Mm-hmm. I mean, you can hear it knowing that, but you know, when children hear this, they're just bouncing along to it, aren't they?、Mm. Yeah. And with Spectre, I feel that here we mark a change in the in the mode of the Christmas music. That earlier it had、yeah. been more Sinatra, it had been more croony.、Yeah. There'd been a lot of that type of standing、yeah. by the mantelpiece with a glass of eggnog and a grin,、mm. and that it became under him much more pop music. Yeah, well, I think you know sort of, we come out of that crooning year, so we're, we're sort of sending songs to the troops during the war of those forties, fifties crooners. You know, that's that's very much in the in the shadow of the the war. And then suddenly you've come out, you've come into this boom of consumerism, the post-war、mm. boom, and then we these songs get repeated over and over again. I mean, there's sort of a joke about an American Christmas tradition being anything a baby boom has done more than once.、Um, so <laughs> <laughs> you end up, you know, with these songs then being recycled. The interesting thing about them is that most of them are versions of older songs. There's only one, I think, original. Original song on there on the record yeah, sleeve. Frosty's thirties, isn't it? Yes, I think、yeah. that's right. And on the record sleeve of、uh, Spectre writes, "Can twelve great Christmas songs be treated with the same excitement as the original pop material of today? Until now, perhaps not." So he's placing it on the same level as your pop hits, which will be coming out throughout the year.、Mm. And I think we're now going to move on to a. An original composition by a very talented singer-songwriter of today, Sufjan Stevens, called "Did I Make You Cry on Christmas Day?" Well, you deserved it. Did I make you cry on Christmas Day? Did I let you down on Christmas Day? David, well, David, that one. Well, Sufjan Stevens has has a strong Christian background. He he was brought up in the Christian faith, and、um, some people feel that they can sort of detect a sort of Christianity running through his music, but it's never explicit. He has though. Recorded quite a lot of、um, explicitly religious Christian Christmas music, but this one sort of, sort of seems to mix up the two parts of his, his sort of musical personality. There's the Christmas element, but there's also the sort of confessional, very personal. It's a beautiful and, and kind of harrowing. 
song. I mean, he had such a troubled family background. His mother was a bipolar alcoholic. Yeah. You know, I mean, he didn't have good childhood Christmases. So there is some really dark stuff that he's putting in the mix. Mm. I'm interested in this song, how it's very simple in a certain way. The rhyme scheme has things like, I stay awake at night after we have a fight. Really very straightforward. And he mm. sings in this very sort of breathy, innocent mm. style. Yet at the same time, the song has these two melodies, which are sort of working in a, yeah. against mm. one another and mm. or working together in a way which yeah. adds these complications in this new dynamic. I think that's what he does. You know, he'll set sort of a, a, in other Christmas songs, he'll set a, a carol against Prince's Alphabet Street or something like that to kind of throw, I think, throw all the random elements that Christmas chucks at you. We're back again to the highs and lows, the bipolar, the... He plays a game when he's writing Christmas songs. He said Christmas is like uh, white rice. You can chuck anything at it. So he ends it with songs like Christmas, Karma, or, you know, and he, he just will have a see at what will go. Well, apparently he has written some songs called like Christmas Boner, which didn't make the cut. But <laughs> Helen, when do you think would be an appropriate moment over the festive season to listen to a song called Did I Make You Cry on Christmas Day Well, You Deserved It? <laughs> <laughs> when you're having a mournful moment on your own with the eggnog. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to a couple of the current crop of Christmas songs. We have, first of all, Gwen Stefani's You Make It Feel Like Christmas, for which she is joined by her partner, or I suppose because it's Christmas, I should feel compelled to call him her boyfriend, Blake Shelton, the country star. And we shall also listen after that to Sears Santa's Coming For Us. Helen, you have your finger on the uh, beating pulse of popular music. <laughs> How weak or strongly do these beat for you? Oh, um, no, I don't like the Gwen Stefani. It feels churned out and sort of bit pitching yourself as a classic for all time seems like a <laughs> <laughs> an unfortunate prophecy for that song. But I do love the new Sears song, uh, Santa Claus is Coming for Us. And I took my kid to a, my eight-year-old son to a Cubs party at the roller rink this week. And he, the, well, the Cubs all just bopped along to the new Sears song, that bop, 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 bop. It was like it had always been there and you could see their mouths forming the little O's. It was, yeah, it was beautiful. It's a slightly menacing title, isn't it? Yes. Son, son, Santa's coming for us. He makes him sound like something out like of a slasher that. movie. You better watch out. You better not cry. He's always... Uh, but I think, you know, these days, pop stars are required to turn out a Christmas album. It's your retirement plan, plan now, isn't it? And I don't think that was the case until Mariah Carey's 94... Christmas album because she just had her biggest selling hit to date with 93's Music Box her husband who is a record company executive sat her down and actually was looking at her long term music strategy they did that Christmas album mm. and she kind of set the benchmark for that she's made 60 million out of it since she's then she's still touring she's just touring that now isn't she she she's is just... touring and I think it's, you know the question for pop critics is not whether you believe in Father Christmas but whether you still believe in Maria's Top C and over time, holiday music has been growing more and more as a, as a sort of uh, market segment that Christmas has begun to take on the importance in music that uh, it has for publishing with books in so much mm. as the last nine weeks of the year in the US can typically make up to a quarter or more of all physical CD sales for the wow. year and digital mm. sales normally spike after Christmas because of yeah. all of the gifts which have been given. Yeah. So it's become this crucial time of the year for the, for the retailers. Yeah, and also in the UK, uh, the Christmas number one has always been a big deal, hasn't it? And even though yeah. no 
one takes a great deal of notice of the charts anymore. The Christmas number one is still quite a big thing, isn't it? That still gets a lot of coverage. And this year, I, I think, Helen, we have Andrew Ridgely has called for a tribute to his fallen wham bandmate, George Michael. Yes, he liked last Christmas to make it up to number one. So he, puts, he hasn't said very much about George Michael since his death, but he's written a, a rather moving memory of their childhoods together. And he's, you know, at the end of that, yes, he calls for George to make Christmas number one. Do you think it will make Christmas number one? I don't know. It depends how many people are moved by that viral post because Mariah is very hard to knock off the top space. That (laughs) that song has become a sort of Christmas standard, hasn't it? It's become something that one hears a lot now and it seems that the whole experience of Christmas has become one that millennials in particular have attached to themselves Mm. to, possibly in an ironic fashion. None of us, I confess, are millennials, but we're all young at heart and indeed (laughs) Helen right now is wearing a Christmas-themed jumper. What do you think there is about Christmas music that is attracting this younger audience? Well, I think think they're free of the kind of um, cultural associations. We all had to belong to a tribe. You had to be a goth or a pop or a whatever. Millennials are completely free of those cultural tribes. They're allowed to embrace cheese. They're allowed to embrace irony. But there's also I mean, the participation in rituals is a strong preventative against anxiety. And I think millennials are living in quite a tense world. So I think mm. the, I mean, the songs that they are downloading are, in fact, these, a lot of these are the old songs. You know, even Mariah's 94, you know, they weren't, they weren't around <laughs> yeah. for that. So they're downloading the old songs. And I think it's a kind of buffer against some of the dark realities. David, do you think that this is ironic or is it actually a sort of felt appreciation for the quality of the music? I think it's genuine. That old thing where there was a, a, a regular night called Guilty Pleasures, which I think it's, it's kind of faded now. Hasn't you don't need it? to because, be guilty anymore. There's just no pleasures. Guilt. Yeah. There's no guilt associated with it. About a decade ago, the race for number one was sort of hijacked, really, by The X Factor, which became the show whose winner would release their single in time for that week's chart and would mm. invariably win. And so yeah. you end up having yeah. whatever. Uh, do you think, David, that reinvigorated the race for number one? I think it probably helped along a little bit, um, but I think what it may have done was to sort of point, because what they were singing were basically classic songs, like, like as you just mentioned, Hallelujah. So often people would maybe buy the Alexander Burke version, but actually go back and investigate the original. Yeah, and I think what I mean, what the X Factor did is the same thing as that Christmas does, which is it brings a family together. So you get cross generational appeal. So you know, people of all the age categories would have been downloading mm. the single. X Factor winners were always singing sort of older songs, standards, and that's one of the interesting things I find about Christmas music is that I think in general there are too many songs. We have too many songs each year. We don't mm. need so many. But at Christmas, it seems to me that the versions which are done of old songs have become very tired and hackneyed. And in fact, I welcome new yeah. songs. So <laughs> Sears' new album has got good originals, which are. You know, interesting to listen to in a way that I don't want to listen to Gwen Stefani doing a cover of the um, for the umpteenth time of some Christmas standard. Yeah, well, exactly. There's the, there's some research out this month, isn't there, saying that you know uh, the Christmas songs as we're going around the supermarkets is depressing us, especially when, as David says, it comes on too early. I think it's almost become a, a, like a meme in some in films where if you want to have a depressing scene, you have somebody wandering around a supermarket yes. with cheesy Christmas yeah. music on in the background, and it's, it's a sort Christmas! of painting a picture of depression. <laughs> yes, I yeah. promised at the top of the program to explore one of uh, the vexing issues of the Christmas song, namely children's choirs. And I'd have to ask you, Helen, do you think that children's choir can work? You had this lovely scene with your son and his cubs. Do, if they'd all yeah. broken out into song themselves, would you have, you would have approved? Yeah, I love a bit of, you know, I, I like it more when it goes wrong, I like the tree falling over. I like Mary and Joseph squabbling over the baby Jesus. But yeah, I mean, I was in a cathedral choir and I loved it. And David, how many is too many bells for you? <laughs> <laughs> There's a limit to the cheesiness, I think. As I get older, I prefer my Christmas music more stripped down. And what is your favourite? I shall end by asking you what your favourite Christmas song is. I think it's probably Silent Night. Um, I've come to re-appreciate it. Helen? 
And this year, it'd be one of my daughter sang, my five-year-old sang in her Christmas play, which was another busy day in heaven, which I hadn't heard before. It was fresh and it was beautiful. And I shall add my favourite, which is Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. And to quote from that rap classic, the time is now, the place is here, and the whole wide world is filled with cheer. So it leaves me only to wish a very happy Christmas to all of our listeners. Thank you to my guests, David Shiel. Thank you. And Helen Brown. Merry Christmas. You can read previous pieces by Helen, David and me in a new book, The Life of a Song, the fascinating stories behind 50 of the world's best love songs, which is published by Brewers and, as it happens, is the perfect stocking present. We'll be back in the new year with another episode and we look forward to having you back then. In the meantime, you can read the latest piece in the series, which is written by David and is about his favourite Christmas song, Silent Night, and its surprising story. It's at ft.com forward slash life of a song. This episode was produced by Chica Ayres and Griselda Murray-Brown. My name's DMC with the mic in my hand And I'm chilling and cooling just like a snowman So open your eyes, lend us an ear We want to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year! Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.